the old pilot's plain tales, the number nine combustor. For airline passengers and crew alike, a fire in the cabin must be amongst the most terrifying of incidents. Over the decades, the industry has improved passenger protection and crew training, but there is only so much that can be done. In August 1985, there was a milestone accident that was to be a defining moment in the history of civil aviation. It involved a Boeing 737-200 series operated by British Air Tours, which was departing Manchester International Airport in the UK, bound for the Greek islands. Captain Peter Terrington and First Officer Brian Love, both experienced pilots, lined up their aircraft on runway 24 for takeoff. Behind them in the cabin were four cabin crew and 131 passengers, all keen to start their holiday flight. Unknown to the pilots five years previously, the number nine combustor can in their left-hand Pratt & Whitney JT-8D had suffered cracks. The ring of cans contained the burning fuel as it is fired to create the heat and pressure required to power the engine. The cracks had been repaired by fusion welding but had not received the required solution heat treatment. The Air Accident Investigation Board were unable to confirm if this had been a major factor in the can's failure, but as the pilot supplied power and started to accelerate down the runway, this was the can that was about to blow. At around 120 knots, a loud thump was heard coming from under the aircraft, and thinking a tyre might have burst, the captain shouted, Stop! ordering the takeoff to be abandoned. First Officer Love applied hard braking, which was moderated after Captain Terrington expressed his concern about a damaged tyre. Nine seconds after aborting, the cockpit fire warning sounded, and the tower confirmed that, Air tours, there is a lot of fire. About 20 seconds before the aircraft stopped, the tower controller also suggested evacuating the passengers on the starboard side. Hearing the bang and seeing the smoke, the fire service had already initiated a response. As the aircraft slowed, it came abeam a short taxiway, Link Delta, and the pilots turned off the runway, coming to a halt facing northwest. The wind was 250 at 7 knots. When the number 9 combustor had ruptured, a section of the cam was ejected forcibly into an underwing tank access panel, which fractured allowing fuel to spill into the hot engine gases and spray forwards as the reverses were deployed. The fuel ignited into a catastrophic fire which trailed after the slowing aircraft and pulled around the left side after it came to a halt. When the crew turned off the runway, they inadvertently orientated the aircraft such that the wind would blow the fire onto the side of the fuselage. Even before the aircraft came to a halt, the captain ordered an evacuation from the right side of the aircraft over the PA system. After completing their evacuation drills and seeing flames on the captain's side of the aircraft, the pilots both escaped the aircraft through the co-pilot's sliding window. In the after part of the cabin, the fire was intense and the flames were cracking and melting the windows, which combined with the radiant heat coming through the fuselage, 
caused the passengers on the left side to stand and move into the aisle. On opening the forward right-hand R1 door, it jammed on the slide container lid. So, after establishing that the left side was also a safe evacuation area, the purser opened the front left L1 door and began evacuating once a number of passengers who had become jammed in the galley area had been physically pulled free. One minute and ten seconds after the aircraft came to a halt, the purser freed the R1 door and evacuation began through that door as well. Beside the right over wing exit was a young lady who, after the encouragement of the other passengers, began trying to open her emergency hatch by pulling on her armrest, which was attached to it. The passenger beside her activated the handle marked emergency pull, whereupon the 48-pound hatch fell into the lady's lap, trapping her. With assistance, the hatch was moved, and 45 seconds after stopping, the passengers began to use that exit as well. At the rear of the aircraft, the R2, right aft door, was opened by the crew member even before the aircraft came to a halt. The crew member was seen in the doorway, but the slide and door were obscured by thick black smoke. Nobody escaped through this door, and the two crew members in that area both died. In total, 17 passengers escaped through the front L1 door, 34 through the front R1 door, and 24 through the right overwing exit. Having self-initiated a deployment, the Airfield Fire Service arrived as the L1 door opened and the evacuation started. The first unit concentrated on keeping the escape routes free of fire, whilst the second attacked the source. A third unit, which had been in the paint shop, arrived a few minutes later. The driver saw a hand waving in the right overwing exit, so he climbed onto the wing and pulled a boy clear of the body of a man trapped in the exit. The boy was the last evacuee to survive the accident. Engine failures and fires are hardly unknown in aviation, and this one was unremarkable. The fact that it occurred during the takeoff run and that the takeoff was promptly stopped was also unremarkable. The fire that developed was inevitable, considering the damage that was done to the fuel tanks, and the evacuation was initiated very promptly, even before the aircraft had come to a complete halt. The fire tenders arrived as the first doors opened and the passengers were escaping within seconds of the exits being available. However, less than 60% of the passengers escaped with their lives. What had gone wrong? As the air accident report stated, there were many factors in the accident that should have resulted in a favourable outcome. The cabin was intact, the aircraft remained mobile and controllable, and no one was injured during the abandoned takeoff. The volume of fuel carried, although capable of producing a serious fire, was relatively small when compared with a typical amount, and the accident occurred at a well-equipped major airport, with the fire services in attendance within 30 seconds of the aircraft stopping. However, 55 lives were lost. The initial failure within the left engine was obviously the primary cause of the accident, but it was only by chance that the debris ejected struck a fuel tank access panel. 
Had the number 9 combustor can hit the underside of the wing, the chances are it would have been deflected, but the access panel was considerably weaker than the main underwing structure, and as a result it was vulnerable. Once the wing tank was ruptured, the ignition of the leaking fuel was inevitable. The rejected takeoff was also conducted in accordance with the company's recommendations and the crew's assessment of the tyre damage was understandable. However, once the fire warnings illuminated, they should probably have modified their actions. By turning his aircraft onto the taxiway, the captain placed it downwind of the rapidly developing conflagration, which worsened the situation. However, this was supported by his flying manual, which advised taxiing clear of the runway if conditions permitted, but it also suggested that, for a fire, consideration should be given to turning into wind before stopping. The board acknowledged that the situation the crew was dealing with was developing very rapidly, and furthermore, the wind had earlier been light and variable. They considered that there was no doubt that the crew and the aviation community at large were quite unaware of the critical influence of light winds on a developing fire. The investigation concluded that it was vital for operators and ATC services to understand that all abandoned takeoffs and emergency landings should end with a full stop on the runway. The seven-knot wind present had a dramatic effect on the accident and subsequent investigations revealed that even a two-knot wind would have been significant, particularly during the fire's development. Not only did the wind drift the heat and flames directly onto the side of the fuselage, but the presence or absence of flames directly affected the perception of which doors were safe to use. A door furthest up the fuselage and away from the fire seemed to be the safest option, However, with the wind blowing as it did that day, the R1 door was in a low-pressure area created in the lee of the fuselage, and as soon as the fire breached the aircraft's skin and windows at the rear of the aircraft, the draft created drove the fire the length of the cabin, greatly reducing the chance of survival. As the aircraft slowed towards a halt, the captain made the PA evacuate on the starboard side, please. The call, however, was not heard properly due to a design anomaly. With the engine shut down, the PA volume was reduced to half, since it was otherwise too loud on a quiet aircraft. The cue for this volume reduction came from the left engine, which, since it had failed, returned the PA to a low setting. As a result, the purser had to confirm with the captain what had been said before he was able to repeat an evacuation announcement himself. The investigation was able to establish that only a few of the 55 deaths were due to the fire itself. The vast majority were due to the toxic nature of the smoke that the burning cabin furniture was creating. It was described by those who escaped ahead of it as a thick, black, impenetrable wall of choking and irritating smoke that blinded them and made them gasp for air. Even a short exposure caused their eyes to appear frosted over with the acidic gases literally burning their throats. Of the 54 occupants who died on the aircraft, 80% had cyanide levels that would have led to incapacitation and in half of those the levels were fatal.
In addition, 74% also had carbon monoxide levels high enough to render them unconscious, and again, half of those levels were above a fatal dose. Only six passengers had died from direct thermal assault. The poisonous fumes that invaded the cabin were by far the most dangerous aspect of the fire. Finding the escape lights almost impossible to see, as more and more became incapacitated, the aisle became blocked with immobile bodies. Nearly half of those who escaped from the overwing exit did so by folding down and climbing over seatbacks, in some cases unwittingly trapping other passengers. It was clear that less than half of those who had been engulfed by the smoke survived, and some of those only through the heroic efforts made to pull them clear. Some others collapsed, but came round again just sufficient to finally escape. The cabin materials used aboard the 737 came under examination, and the toxic gases that they released when burned revealed a horrifying list of deadly and incapacitating chemicals. Hydrogen cyanide, nitrogen dioxide, hydrogen fluoride, hydrogen chloride, sulfur dioxide, ammonia, acrolein, benzene, toluene, styrene, the list went on. The board went to great lengths to examine the survivability of the accident, noting that a significant number of the dead did not suffer fatal burns. There were also areas of the aircraft where the seats survived the fire, and many of the plastic safety cards and magazines were unburned. This was in sharp contrast to the FAA's belief that a flashover would occur within two minutes of fire penetration into the cabin, with unsurvivable temperatures reaching 1,000 degrees centigrade, resulting in a critical reduction in oxygen levels. Although this can and has occurred in real life, there were too many variables to safely predict it as a likelihood. The aftermath of the accident resulted in truly mammoth efforts to discover exactly why there had been such a large loss of life and what might be done in the future to prevent a reoccurrence. Pilot procedures were examined and changed to ensure that the best actions were being promoted. The cabin crew received praise for assisting for as long as they did as they only retreated from the aircraft when they were in real danger of succumbing to the fire. The firefighting tactics used were examined and where lacking they were improved although the bravery of the firefighters themselves was never questioned. When they gained access to the cabin area some seven minutes after the fire started, an explosion blew one of them straight out of a door, and since the collapse of the fuselage was imminent, they were forced to retreat. The choke points within the cabin that delayed the evacuation were also highlighted. Cabins required a demonstration of a full evacuation, within 90 seconds with half the exits unavailable, but this did not include the case where the cabin layout restricted flow, as in the Air Tours 737, or when only forward exits were available. A great deal of work was done looking at cabin sprinkler systems that could beat down toxic fumes, flames and heat, but the volume of water required was considerable even for a short time. One of the most controversial then, and still now, was the suggestion that smoke hoods should be provided. 
it was generally considered preferable for passengers to evacuate and get away from the danger as soon as possible without the complication and delay involved with the donning of unfamiliar equipment. Over the years, the provision of fire retardant covers and treatments to materials in the cabin has improved, but there is still considerable work required both in the material and the forms of testing. So, after all this time, there are still unanswerable questions on what is the best way to survive such an emergency. The best solution is undoubtedly a prompt evacuation, which requires alert passengers that are sensibly dressed, have listened to the emergency brief and prepared themselves properly. Now, where was my nearest escape exit? And may I have another glass of champagne, please?